What's going on, Valley Christian Church? It's great to see you guys here today. I'm Stephen Francis, the campus pastor for the Poughkeepsie campus, and I'm so excited to be here with you for week two of our series, Thrones, Who's on the Throne of Your Heart? This series is based off of the book of Judges, and we spent last week hearing from Dr. Greg about how people can be consistently inconsistent. And because of being consistently inconsistent, how we need to break those rhythms. Well, Dr. Greg is on vacation today, so he's left it up to me. Last week he talked from Judges 1 and 2, and I'm here to talk to you about what happens in Judges chapter 3. Before I get into that, Dr. Greg, like I said, he's on vacation. And I want to know, does anybody here have some fun vacations planned for themselves in the next coming weeks and months? Anybody in here? All right. Awesome. Awesome. I pray you all have a fun and safe vacation. I actually just got back from vacation with my wife, Jasmine, celebrating one year of marriage, which is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So far, so good. That's all I can say. It's been great. We did something a little unique. We went on a California road trip. So we flew into San Diego and we drove all the way up to San Francisco, stopping at some different places in between. And when it comes to vacations, guys, I'll be honest, I'm a big planner. I like to know what we're doing, where we're going. So I get put on the duty of finding places that we can stay where we make our particular stops during this trip. So I'm looking online, and I go on Airbnb, which is this cool bed and breakfast website where you can find great places in the, in the area. And I find what I believe to be a gold mine in the city of San Francisco. This place in the pictures was awesome. It had this huge, luxurious bedroom, this big old flat screen TV, and it said that it was in a gated community in the heart of San Francisco. So I'm excited because I'm like, man, we're not just going to see San Francisco. We're going to be living in luxury while we're in San Francisco. So I'm excited. So we get to California, we make the road trip to San Francisco, we make it to the location where we're going to be staying, we get out the car, we look at the building, and guys, it is absolutely terrible. <laughs> it was this beat up old building in the middle of San Francisco, and what they said was a gated community was just this beat up old gate that was covering over the actual door to get into the building. <laughs> It gets worse. We get into the building. We find out that we're staying on the third floor. No elevator, though, so we have to take our luggage all the way up to the third floor. We get to our room, and what I thought was going to be this huge, luxurious room is actually extremely small and uncomfortable. It was so small, Jasmine and I could not have our suitcases open at the same time. Otherwise, there would be no room to move. But the worst part was this. It took us a while to get to San Francisco, so my wife, she had to use the bathroom. So she goes to the bathroom. Mind you, we don't have our own personal bathroom. It's a community bathroom that's on every floor. So she goes into the community bathroom, and she shuts the door to use the bathroom. And when she shuts the door, mice try to sneak into the bathroom from the hallway. Notice that I did not say mouse. Mice try to break in the bathroom when she shut the door. She screams, she stomps her foot, she runs over to me to tell me what happened. And listen, guys, I'm a pretty flexible guy. I can be optimistic about things and find the brighter side and make it work, but I don't do mice, bro. 
When she told me there was mice in the bathroom trying to break in, I was downstairs with the luggage in the car, ready to go anywhere but stay there, because I don't do mice. That's all I'm saying. You can tell I'm serious. So we go, we find a different place, and it was fine. We had a great time. But guys, I was so disappointed because I had this picture of how I thought this place was supposed to be, and it was exactly the opposite. Has that ever happened to anybody in here before? We had a picture in your mind of how you thought it was gonna be, and it ended up being exactly the opposite of what you wanted. Anybody in here? Happy to know I'm not the only one. So I thought about that, and it made me think about this question. When we look at our own lives, are we disappointed because it's not the way we pictured it would be? Let me take it a step further. Do you think when God looks at your life, he's disappointed because your life is not what he pictured it would be? The truth is God does not feel that way. God knows you the best and loves you the most Yet it doesn't stop us from projecting our feelings about ourselves onto how God should treat us because of how we picture our lives are. And my sermon today is going to help whoever that person is that feels that way to know that God does have a plan and he has an idea of doing something way bigger in your life than you could ever imagine. And when you look back, you'll be able to say, that it was better than you pictured. That's the title of my sermon today. Our sermon comes from Judges chapter 3. In Judges chapter 3, we see the people of Israel have been taken captivity by this evil king named Eglon. Eglon has formed these alliances with these other enemies of Israel, and together they've taken the entire nation. And now Israel is under the severe oppression. People are being raped and killed by this king. So the people of Israel begin to cry out to God, saying, God, please send us a deliverer. Send us a rescuer who can save us from this oppression. And it says this in Judges 3.15. Again, the Israelites called out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ahud, a left-handed man. Now, here's the thing with Scripture. Scripture isn't like a novel. When you read a novel, there's always things in the novel that help describe who the characters are, the places where they are, so you can get a picture of everything that's going on. Scripture doesn't do that, and Scripture only tells you things like this if it's important to the story. So if that's the case, why is it important for us to know that Ahud was a left-handed man? Real quick, do we have any left-handed people in here right now? Anybody? Why does a good portion of you guys? I raise my left hand to you in salute. I had no idea the struggles that left-handed people have to go through on a daily basis living in a right-handed world until I studied for this sermon. Credit card swipers when you go to the store are always made for right-handed people. When you put your pants on in the morning, that little flap that covers up your zipper to your pants is made for right-handed people to get to. Left-handed people have struggles just to get ready in the morning. <laughs> when you go to a restaurant with a group of people, if somebody's left-handed, they always have to eat at the edge of the table. Otherwise, they're going to keep hitting the other people that are right-handed who are trying to eat. 
And things like three-ring binders, scissors, and can openers that we as right-handed people think nothing about are actually extremely annoying and painful for left-handed people to use. And that's just the issues here in 2016. Back then, it was even more of an issue because left-handed people were looked down upon because the right hand was always the sign of strength and blessing. God always blessed people with his right hand in the Bible. And you would never use your left hand socially in the times of Scripture. There's actually places in the Middle East where you still aren't allowed to use your left hand. You would never shake somebody's hand. You would never wave hello because the left hand is only used to clean yourself up after using the bath. So on top of all of those things being a disadvantage for Ehud, when you actually look at the original uh, writing in the original Hebrew, the scripture actually says God gave them a deliverer, Ehud, who could not use his right hand. Ehud was paralyzed or disabled in his right hand. So he was known for being left-handed because that was his only good hand. So imagine the people of Israel who are now in captivity, who are under the severe oppression, calling out for God to send a deliverer, and God sends them a guy with only one working hand. You can imagine the people of Israel saying, God, this is not the picture of the deliverer that I was imagining. And you know, I can kind of resonate with a huge a little bit with my own life. I'm not left-handed, but in my earlier years, I was in a situation where I feel like how Ehud might have felt when it was revealed he would be the deliverer. You know, I, before I came here to New York as a pastor, I actually grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and I became a licensed minister at my local church at 17 years old. And a lot of people may think that that's nice and that's impressive, but it was actually one of the hardest times of my life, and I'll tell you why. You see, every Sunday, the pastor would ask all the ministers to come up to the stage. Now, this is a very big church, probably about 2,000 people attended regularly every Sunday, every service, and there was probably about 20 to 30 ministers that were there in every service, and I was one of them. And he would ask the ministers to come up, and we would stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, facing the crowd, and the pastor would say, if there's anybody here looking for prayer or they want to get saved, come down and a minister would love to greet you and pray with you. So here I am, 17 years old, so excited for God using me in this incredible way. And I remember my first day, my mom got me like a new suit, so I looked extra nice when I was up there. And I remember praying to God, God, thank you so much for me being here. I'm so excited for what you have next for me. Send me some people so I can pray for them, God. And I remember standing up there with the rest of the ministers that are way older, way more seasoned in life. The pastor says, whoever needs prayer, come down. People come down by the dozens. And I'm standing there, big smile, open hands, ready to pray for people and nobody came to me. <laughs> and I remember saying, you know what, you know what, it's okay, it's okay. They probably ain't know I was a minister though. See, <laughs> they probably thought I came up at the wrong time for prayer and I had to stand there awkwardly with the rest of the ministers. It's fine, it's cool. Next week when they see me standing up there again with the ministers, they'll know I'm legit and they will come to me for prayer. So the next week came, the ministers are called, I'm standing up there, big smile, open hands, ready to pray for people, and again, nobody comes to me. And then the next week came, 
And the next week came, and the next week came, and I realized nobody wanted me to pray for them. In fact, I would see people walk down the aisle to get prayer. They would see me, and then they would instantly dart their eyes to someone else to go to. And I realized the reason why they didn't want me to pray for them was because when they pictured getting prayer for their situation, maybe for the family, for the finances, for their health, they didn't picture opening up to a minister that was 17 years old and also had braces and peach fuzz on his face. So instead, I decided to think to myself, maybe it's better for me to sit down when the ministers are called and make the other people that are older and more seasoned in life be the ones that pray for these people because they don't want me. And I remember this moment when I decided to do that one particular Sunday and God spoke to me. He said, Stephen, I need you to get up. I need you to be up there with the rest of the ministers. And I, and I told God, God, you know, I like to, you know, I, I, I wanted to originally, but they don't want me. And maybe somebody in here feels the same way. Maybe you feel when people see your life, or if people could see your life, if they could see the things that you struggle with when nobody's around, if they could see the temper issues that you have, the issues with your spouse and your kids, maybe people would think that you weren't qualified either. But you already know that, so instead, instead of getting involved, instead of stepping up to serve or do other things, you just kind of sit in your seats thinking that there's someone better fitted for the job. I remember sitting there and I said, God, you know, I'd like to, but there's other people that are way better than me. And God said this, and this is actually my first point in our notes today, if you're following along in the Valley app. God told me that he doesn't need my capability. He needs my availability. And that's the same way it was with A. Hude. He wasn't someone that was necessarily a great warrior, but he was someone who was available to God for him to use. So God called Ahud in the midst of all of the people that chose to serve idols, and he decided to give Ahud a special mission. So Ahud goes on this mission. He creates this nice dagger that he's able to conceal underneath the inner part of his right thigh. And he brings a tribute to King Eglon. Back then, if you were a nation that got conquered by another nation, you would try to bring tributes to the conquerors. That way you can try to be on best terms with those people as possible. So Ahud brings a tribute for the people of Israel to King Eglon, and he goes into his private quarters where it's just Eglon, his servants, and his soldiers. And Eglon is enjoying this tribute. It was probably money or food of some sort. And then Ahud tells King Eglon, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. And Ahud, who sees that, excuse me, Eglon, that sees that Ahud is not a threat, asks everybody else to leave so it can just be him and Ahud. And Ahud walks close to King Eglon. By the way, Scripture says that King Eglon was a very fat man. Once again, Scripture only gives you details if it's important, and you'll realize why in a second. Ahud walks up to King Eglon and gets close to him as if he's about to whisper a secret in his ear. And he tells King Eglon, I have a special message from God for you. 
he pulls out the hidden dagger and he stabs King Eglon. Stabs him so deep that King Eglon's fat covers over the entire blade and Ehud can't get the knife back. Ehud, excuse me, Eglon becomes so shocked at being stabbed and then also with the blood and passing, he actually ends up using the bathroom on himself and then drops to the floor dead. Ehud quickly escapes the palace room, he locks the door behind him, and he escapes to the people of Israel. And then the soldiers come to check on King Eglon, but before they actually open the door to see how King Eglon is doing, they notice there's a certain smell coming from the other side of the door. So they say, hey man, you know, it was Taco Tuesday, maybe he's, having, maybe he's not having an easy go, let's just wait here till we know it passes. And scripture says that they stood there to the point of embarrassment from the smell. That eventually it was like, I can't take it anymore. Let's see what's going on with King Eglon. They open the door to see that King Eglon has been assassinated and he's dead on the floor. And by the time they realize that Eglon has been killed, Ehud is now back with the soldiers of Israel. They take over the kingdom. They take over all the alliances that were made. And peace is restored to Israel once again. You see, the people of Israel, when they saw Ehud, just saw a guy with one working hand. When Eglon saw Ehud, he saw a guy that was not a threat to him at all. But when God saw Ehud, he saw a secret weapon that could be used for the kingdom of God. Now that actually reminds me, I didn't finish my story about being a 17-year-old minister. So God tells me that it's not about capability, it's about availability. So I go up there once again standing, and after God said that, believe it or not, still no one came to me for prayer. And then the next week came, and no one came. But then the week after that, someone came to ask me to pray for them. And I was so excited and eager to pray for this person. I think I prayed with them for like 20 minutes and I was beating sweat by the time I finished praying for this person. I was just so excited to pray. But after I prayed for that person, then more people came to pray, uh, to ask me to pray for them. And then eventually these ministers were like, hey, Stephen, would you like to be a part of our prayer ministry? And I was like, yes, absolutely. I'd love to be a part of that. And I joined this prayer ministry. And then after being in the prayer ministry for a while, they're like, hey, Stephen, would you like to do a little sermonette before we open up in prayer when we do these prayer meetings? I was like, yeah, sure. I'll try it. I don't know. I'll give it a shot. And I did my first sermonette. And that turned into another sermonette. And that turned into another sermon and another sermon. And here I am as a pastor here at Valley Christian Church preaching in front of you wonderful people right now. But I probably wouldn't be here preaching if I wasn't available to God back then. And I believe that that's what happens when we show that there's power in availability. You know, there was a song on the radio uh, a little while back ago. It was called Started From The Bottom, Now We're Here. <laughs> Started From The Bottom, Now The Whole Team Here. I know we're in the church. I won't sing the whole thing. Some of you guys have heard it. But I was listening to the radio the other day, and there was a segment on the radio called Started from the Bottom, and it was talking about these certain celebrities and what they were doing before they became famous. I thought it was so interesting, I actually decided to write some down so I could share it with you today. 
Madonna, who's according to Billboard and Guinness Book of World Records, is the best-selling female recording artist of all time. Over 360 awards she's received over her career. Used to work as an employee at Dunkin' Donuts. Steve Harvey, the TV personality, comedian, businessman, you see him on Family Feud. I feel like every time I turn on the television, Steve Harvey's there now. Steve Harvey was homeless for over three years. And Walt Disney, the person responsible for Disney World and Disney Motion Pictures, which still makes incredible movies to this day, used to just be an ambulance driver who would make little cartoons in between his breaks. But the ultimate starter from the bottom now we're here story that they didn't mention on the radio show, but I want to mention it here, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born in a cave with a bunch of animals. You know how disgusting and unsanitary that is? He was laid in a manger, a feeding trough filled with bacteria and hay, which is not comfortable for a newborn baby to be laid in. Jesus grew up on the south side of Nazareth, the projects of Israel. <laughs> but when we think about Jesus today, we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. But when we look at people like that, we only see them in their current state. We fail to remember where they came from, nor do we have the capacity to see where they could be. But God doesn't have that problem. When God saw Ehud, he saw someone who was available to be used as a mighty deliverer. And I believe God has something great for you as well. But here's the kicker. I believe Ehud was available, but I don't think availability means doing nothing, waiting for something to happen. I don't think Ehud spent his time at home wishing his right hand worked. I think he found opportunities on how to serve God the best of his ability with the hand that was able to work. And the same should go for us. So how then do we become people that are available? Let me say this as well. You know, if you're someone in here, just to get a better image of what I'm saying, if you're someone in here that's single and available right now, you don't find a spouse by staying at home and doing nothing, hoping that someone knocks on your door. That's how you end up trying to Facebook someone on Facebook and getting catfished. Some of y'all got that, and the rest of y'all didn't. It's fine. But you need to make opportunities for yourself, make yourself available to make new relationships and develop deeper ones. So how do we do that when it comes to our relationship with God? The first thing that you need to do is you need to eradicate your imaginary image. You know, there's two different types of people in this world. There's people that are cat people and there's people that are dog people. There's, there's people that have iPhones and there's people that are missing out because they don't have iPhones. <laughs> there's people that love to wake up in the morning and there's people that don't like the people that love to wake up in the morning. See that hand. But there's also people that are broken and messed up. And people that are broken and messed up, but they pretend that they're not. We live in an age 
that loves to be the image of perfection and not show struggle. If you don't believe me, check your social media and see how many filtered images are made of people that have seemingly perfect lives. And because of that, we burden ourselves with this pressure of always looking like everything is fine, everything is good, to the point when someone says, hey, how are you doing? You'll say good even though you know it's not the truth because you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. But the problem with that is, is that God can't heal or bless who you pretend to be. He can't heal the wounds in your life that you pretend are not there. He cannot fix the things in your life that you pretend are not broken. And not only should we be people that are open and honest with God, God, here's my struggles. Here are the things I struggle with when I'm alone. Here's the things I struggle with with my family. Here's the things I struggle with with my finances or my health. But we need to be people that are able to do that here in church. You know why a lot of people don't like church? Because they think it's just a bunch of perfect people telling unperfect people what to do. Just a preacher on stage shouting at everybody at what they should and what they should not be doing. But I believe God calls us to a better method. And I don't just think this is my opinion. Paul shows this in Philippians. Jesus shows this in how he came to earth as a man. The more powerful statement that we can say to people that are struggling is not you should, but it should be me too. We may not all have the same situation, but we all have struggles in some way. And when we come in here and someone opens up, listen, I don't think my marriage is going to make it. Listen, my kids are driving me insane. Listen, I don't think that we're going to make rent in time. Listen, I don't think I can live a pure life. I keep trying, but I'm struggling. We can have people that live in the church that can say, you know what? I'm struggling too. Let's seek God together. Let's trust him together. Let's pray together. Let's grow together. And from that, there is a power and a healing that comes that is better than us trying to put on fake smiles, acting like everything is okay. The next thing that we need to do is we need to have a proactive perspective. Because you, if you want to be honest about your issues, that's absolutely necessary, but you don't want your deficiencies to become your identities either. Having a proactive perspective makes you know who God made you to be and you pursuing that which he has called you to do. You know, last year I talked about uh, during our marriage series, uh, I, I did a sermon on dating. And I talked about how we should not turn our brains off when it comes to uh, certain things with dating. And the way that we do that is with saying certain phrases like I found my soulmate or I think I found the one. The problem with that is, as nice as that is, it causes us to start to justify the wrong things that that person that we're doing, ignoring the red flags. And I think the same way that we do that sometimes with dating, I think we do that with God. I think God has some things that he's put in our hearts, and instead of us being active, we just say, oh, well, you know, if it's the Lord's will, it'll happen. I'm just going to wait on him, see what he does. If it's in his plan... And my problem with that is I believe that's a half-truth. Is God going to do something? Does God have a will and a plan for your life? Absolutely. But there's still a responsibility on your part to get up and figure out what that is. And trust me, God is powerful enough where if you're going somewhere where he does not want you to go, he will redirect you. 
But just because you may not be doing what God has ultimately called you to do does not mean that he has currently called you to do nothing. The next thing that you need to do, that we need to do, is seek self-understanding. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship in the original Greek is translated to the word pome, which means poem. You are a work of art created by God, created to express something beautiful, a character about himself in a unique way. And the better we understand ourselves, the better we're able to live that out in our own lives, displaying the design that he's made us. So with that, I have some things here that can kind of help us get into that understanding of how we seek self-understanding. First one is this, we need to know our history. Your ethnicity, your family background, your upbringing, all of that was on purpose. And you could take those things, whether they were good or bad, give it to the Lord, and God can show you how to use that to help other people that are coming up along the way. Next thing is your personality. Are you an extrovert or introvert, thinker or feeler? Are you someone who's thorough? Are you someone that's very decisive? Understanding those things not only can help you figure out what God wants you to do, but it can also help you, sh it, it can also help show what things to avoid. Next thing is your passion, your intensity. What are the things that make you cry? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that make you angry? What are the things that make you rejoice? Understand what those things are. And the better you do that, the more you can understand your passion and you can pursue those things and find your calling. With that comes finding your capacity, figuring out what it is you're passionate about, and then learning how to become even better at those things, taking risks, getting education about those things, getting mentorship, asking people for help. All of those things can help start to grow your capacity so you can better know yourself and what you're capable of doing through the power of Jesus Christ. And last is your opportunity. And I actually have two things here written so you guys can understand what I mean by opportunity, and it should be in your app. But opportunity can be something bad happening in the world that you might be able to stop. And opportunity can be something good that isn't happening that you can start. You know, we have people here that found opportunities and now have done great ministries outside of Valley Christian Church, like Unshattered and Bread of Life. But I don't think that God is done doing those things. I believe that there's more people in here with more seeds of opportunity that when we know what these things are, we can start to get involved and make a huge difference. And by the way, if you're looking to have a better understanding of what your personality is, I highly recommend you, to, you take Growth Track. Growth Track 301, you could take a personality and a spiritual gifts test, figure out where your best fit is in ministry and other things all in one class. But the last thing that we need to do in being available for God is that we need to live life intentionally. And living life intentionally can be something small. It could be something like putting in your calendar, I'm going to pray for my husband, my spouse, my family at this time. It could be saying, you know what, once a month I'm going to help out at a food pantry, bread of life, or a soup kitchen of some sort. 
a great way to live life intentionally is to just find a place to serve here at Valley Christian Church. If you're not serving, there's plenty of ministries from the tech team and Valley Kids, Poughkeepsie Setup Team, uh, Host Team, where you can not only find your gift, but you can find other people that are also with your similar gift, and you can grow connections and opportunities can flourish from that. And you know, that's all the time that I have for today. But before I conclude, I want to ask you this final question. Are you available to God? Are you someone that when God sees, he sees someone that could be used for greater things? Once again, it doesn't matter what you've done or the struggles that you have. God just needs people that are available. And this series is called Thrones. Who's on the throne of your heart? And I think a lot of us, instead of having God on the throne of our hearts actually have our capabilities on our heart instead. And the problem with that is, is that too often we overestimate what we can do without God and underestimate what we can do with him. Like Ehud, I believe God has some great things in store for the rest of us. And when we picture our lives we may see issues, but we also have another picture, a picture of something that's better for us, a picture of something that's better for our children, one that doesn't have senseless violence like the, what we saw in Orlando, one that's better for our community, one with people loving one another and finding healing from addictions and struggles. But the best part is, is that God has a picture of that too. And you're in that picture. I'm in that picture and I believe that if we make ourselves available to God the way Ahu made himself available God can use us as instruments to make that picture a reality and I promise after you try God after you make yourself available and you look back on your life and see all that God has done it will be better than you pictured let me pray for you guys. God, I thank you for each and every person here under the sound of my voice. And I thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for each and every one of us to do great and mighty and awesome things because you are a God that is not a God of less. You're not a God of mediocre. You're not a God of little. So, Father, we pray for you to use each and every one of us, that we make ourselves available for you today. We don't know where you take us, but we know that it will be glorious and awesome. If there's anybody in here that feels like I've done too much damage, I have too much problems, I pray that you step in and that you bring healing, you bring deliverance, you let them see what happens when we put our life in your hands instead. And I thank you so much for each and everything that you are going to do here for the lives of these people. I believe this is done now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.